All right, we are now into week two of our series into Hebrews. And so I just want to recap a little bit. Well, for one, if you did not listen to the first week, to the last sermon, I encourage you, go back, listen to that. Really try to set the stage for why Hebrews was written, what the context of that letter is. So that'll be really helpful as we make our way through the letter. So I want to encourage you, go back and listen to that first message. But... Today we're going to go on, we're going to continue on into Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 4, go through verses 14. And to recap just a little bit, the pastor in this, uh, the pastor, the author of this letter, of this sermon letter, is pleading with his church to persevere in the faith. Right now this church is being tempted to turn from Jesus, to... uh, to go back to a life of Judaism. They've been persecuted, they've suffered, they've been arrested, they've lost their possessions, and most likely they see that persecution is only going to continue to rise. And so, the church figures that if it goes back to Judaism, that is better than Christianity. After all, Judaism was legal in the first century, whereas Christianity was not. But here's the thing. If they do that, what do they do with Jesus? How do they go back to Judaism and still have some type of understanding of Jesus? After all, if Jesus really is the Son of God who fulfills the Old Testament expectations, then the wise thing to do would be to keep the faith. But what if Jesus wasn't the Son of God? What if Jesus was just a really good person? What if Jesus was, was maybe more than a person, but, but less than a God? Maybe somewhere around the status of angels. Maybe a little greater, maybe a little less, but just somewhere around their status. And so, in our text today, the author wants to show us that Jesus is supreme to angels. Now, at first glance, you might say, Why would you compare Jesus to angels? Of all the things, why angels? Well, first century Judaism had a very high view of angels. They believed God was surrounded by a host of angels. They believed angels were used to govern parts of creation, like the sea and the stars and thunder and lightning. They saw angels as messengers of God carrying out His will and His purposes. But most of all, they saw and they believed that angels were used in the bringing about of the Old Covenant, of the covenant that was given to Moses and that had been lived and adhered to for hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, and Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, and Acts chapter 7, all these New Testament references will also support the idea that angels were used in the instituting of the Old Testament. And so, if Jesus is simply an angel, or maybe a little less than an angel, then the Old Covenant is still in place. They're justified in going back to Judaism, and thus, they no longer need to continue to be persecuted under Christianity. This means the early church... um, now, Now, think about what's happening here. Just think about this. Rather than letting the Bible define 
who Jesus is, they're letting the cultural pressures that surround them shape who they think Jesus is. They're, they're trying to manage Jesus. This is, now, this is something that I think you and I, we can all relate to, we can all understand. Because from the very present, or from the very uh, first century, all the way to the present, we as humans have had to have had tried to redefine who Jesus is. Uh, docetism, which came around in the first century, uh, they said Jesus wasn't really a man. He was more like a God pretending to be a man. Think like Superman. He looked like a man, but he wasn't really one of us. And if that was the case, then Jesus wasn't actually a proper sacrifice to stand in your place and mine. Or then there, there came Arianism. Arianism is similar to Jehovah Witness and Mormonism where they believe that Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus was a part of God's creation. He was the first part of God's creation, better than the rest, but still part of creation and thus not equal with God. Think, uh, think Thor in Avengers. He's less than Odin, but more than humanity. And then... And then liberalism. Now, liberalism has been affecting uh, the last hundred years in great and significant ways. Liberalism says Jesus is just a good person, a good moral teacher, someone that we should follow, but he is certainly not God. Again, think uh, superhero, think Batman. He, he's one of us. He just seems to always be better than the rest of us. Now, there are hundreds and hundreds of heresies regarding Jesus. And what we need to know is that in our sinfulness, we try to water down who Jesus is. We want to make him more like us. For if we can do that, then we don't need to worship him. We don't need to obey him. It's okay for us to simply just be a Sunday worshiper, and that's it. It's okay for us to go live like Jesus on Sundays, be a good example there, but on the rest of the week, go live however we want to live. Now, in today's culture, some people think of Jesus more like a Happy Meal. He's just this toy that makes our lives better. Other people think of Jesus uh, and coming to church on Sundays, like going to the gas station. <clears throat> we go get our fill up. We go get our positive thoughts. And then we go on throughout the rest of the week. And others, we just think of Jesus like a vending machine. When we need something, we yank down on that lever. Jesus is here to give us all the things that we want because his main goal in life is to make us happy. Again, we could just go through so many ways that in our current context, in our culture, that we as humans have tried to minimize who Jesus is. And all of these ideas are false. They trivialize Jesus. And if any of them were true, if any of them were true, it would be foolish for us to follow Jesus. It would be foolish for us to take up our crosses and live like him and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. And so today, what the author is going to do is he says, hold on. I want you to know that Jesus is not equal to angels. He is far greater than angels. He wants us to have an accurate understanding of Judaism so, or of Jesus. So we want to turn back to Judaism or any other religion or false teaching. And so uh, what we're going to do, 
We're going to read verses 4 through 14, and then we're going to pray. And so I want to encourage you to stand as we read God's Word. Even though you're at home, I say we stand. It's a way just simply for us to honor our God and our King, to recognize that this Word comes from Him, inspired by the Spirit, in order to uh, encourage us, to equip us, and to train us to do all that God has called us to do. So here we go. Verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, <clears throat> and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn to the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he said, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O David, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with, all, with oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your ears have no end. And to which of the angels did he ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray. Our Father, Father, we come to you now, and I pray that, that your Spirit would give us great conviction, great clarity, and great comfort in your Word today, that we would accurately understand who your Son Jesus is, that we would see Him in all of His beauty and all of His glory, that today as we look at the supremacy of your Son, we would be encouraged to continue to follow Him, to trust in Him, to take up our crosses daily and persevere in the faith, proclaiming the name of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that today, because of Your Word, our faith would be strengthened. And Lord, I pray that we would have a greater conviction and need to share the Gospel with others and to come alongside other believers in the church to encourage them and to love them, that together we would, we would run the race that you have given us. In your name, Jesus, amen. All right. Um, I'm sorry, my throat seems to just be doing something this morning. So I think I'm supposed to be drinking water, uh, but I love coffee. So I'm just going to keep drinking coffee and see if that helps. All right, here we go. First thing I want us to see is that we must remind one another of the truth of God's Word. Okay? We must remind one another of the truth of God's Word. Look at verse 4. The author says that Jesus has a superior name to the angels. Now, the word superior, or it might be translated better in your Bibles, it's one of the author's favorite letters or favorite words in this sermon letter. 
He uses it to describe the ministry of Jesus over and over again. He will say, Jesus has given us a better covenant. Jesus has given us better sacrifices, a better possession, and a better resurrection. Now, the author's point is not simply that Jesus improves our lives, but that he is the one who truly saves us. You see, what, he, what he's going to do here in our text and in the rest of the book of Hebrews is he wants to show that Jesus is the climax, the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. And so, so here's the question. How is he going to show that Jesus, uh, to show the supremacy of Jesus uh, over angels? How is he going to show that it's foolish to turn to Judaism and that we must persevere in our faith? Well, in verses 5 through 14, he's going to quote seven Old Testament passages. And so, just like uh, evidence after evidence after evidence from the Old Testament, he's going to pack it on top of one and each, uh, on top of each other so that when we look at all these verses, we'd be overwhelmed in the sense just go, yes, Jesus is greater than angels. And so that's what he's going to do. But now, interestingly, the author doesn't give the context for any of these passages. He simply just, just mentions them, quotes them, and assumes that you and I, that the reader, that the church is going to understand them and to know the context. He, under, he assumes that this church knows God's Word, studies God's Word, believes in God's Word. <clears throat> now, here's the thing. If they know God's Word, then why are they drifting? <clears throat> why, are they, why are they beginning to doubt their faith? <clears throat> I mean, as a church, as a church, we're always talking about the sufficiency of God's Word, right? So if this church knows God's Word, why are they questioning their faith? Here's the thing. Don't ever underestimate the power of sin. Okay? We, we, we don't want to overestimate its power either. But we can't underestimate its power. See, <clears throat> God uses trials in our lives for our good, to build us up, to strengthen us, to grow us in our faith. But, but our sin will always try to, to pervert God's purposes. Sin jumps at the opportunity <clears throat> to cause doubt in our heart, in our mind. And once doubt has sufficiently taken hold, we will begin to deny the truth of God's word. That's what Adam and Eve did. They first begin to doubt. Wait, maybe God's not as good as what we thought. And once they begin to really believe that, they actually denied his existence, which is why they sinned. Oops. Now, many of you know, many of you know this truth. Many of you experience this, this doubt and this denial that comes because of sin. You found yourselves in a trial and it's begun to persevere for a long period of time. And you begin to say, where is God? How can God allow this? Does God even hear my prayers? And we see the psalmist often asking those questions. And it's okay for us to wrestle with thoughts and questions like that. But the problem is, is when we stay there and when we don't come back to the truth of God's word, then those doubts will turn to denial and we will turn from God 
every time. So what, what do we need at that moment? What does this church need at this moment? It needs to be reminded the truth of God's word. So see, what the author is going to do, he's going to use God's word like an arrow, and from a bow he's going to shoot it right at the heart and the mind of every believer. For when God's, heart, when God's word pierces our heart, it brings forth with it clarity, conviction, and comfort that will overcome denial and doubt. You understand that? God's word is the solution that we need to overcome our doubts and our denials. And, and so every week we demonstrate and we practice this truth right here when we preach God's word. We make sure that whoever stands here or in the pulpit on Sundays, that we are not standing here to give you opinions, to entertain you with stories and wonderful ideas, but that we would come and bring forth God's word. This is what we need. This is what your children need. This is what your spouse needs you to do on a regular basis. This is why we do table groups. Table groups are just a means in which we gather in smaller groups for the purpose of encouraging, equipping us to build us up in the word of God that we would live faithful lives persevering in the faith. We need to be regularly reminded of God's word. This is why in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, the author will say this, Exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you know you need that? Do you know you need to be exhorted, encouraged, brought back to the word of God every day? And you need other people to come alongside you for that. That's how God has made us. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at four truths on how Jesus is superior to angels. And the first one, Jesus' name is superior to angels. We're going to start right there. Jesus' name is superior to angels. Verse 4. The author says, Jesus has a superior name. Now, what name is he referring to? What name? Well, in chapter 1, verse 2, we're told that God has spoken to us by his Son. And in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? So it appears that the name that is being emphasized here is the fact that Jesus is God's son. And so he's saying, Has there ever been an angel called the very son of God? And the answer is no. No, there is not. Jesus alone is the one true Son of God. And so he's going to quote Psalm chapter 2 and 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, Psalm chapter 2 is, is a psalm that says that the king of God's people will be God's son and he will rule over the nations. And this king will be supreme and his kingdom will last forever. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is where God comes to David. We call it the Davidic covenant. And David, or God comes to David and says, I'm going to give you a son. And this son will reign on your throne for everlasting. He will rule and he will rule the nations. And his throne and his kingdom will never come to an end. Now, when that promise was made, that there will be a king that comes from the line of David. No one ever thought it would actually be 
the Son of God, Jesus Christ. They were looking for a normal man that would come from David because the kings, the kings of Israel were called the Son of God. Now that, that doesn't mean they were equal like Jesus is. It just means that they were to represent God. Israel as a whole was called God's Son. And the king representing Israel and representing the authority of God was called God's Son. And so they all were thinking, there's going to come a king from the line of David, and we're looking for him. And that's what the whole Old Testament is about. We're constantly looking for the king who's going to establish the kingdom and rule in righteousness for all of eternity. But here's the thing. As we make our way through the Old Testament and we go from king to king to king to king, we see failure, 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 failure. None of them are able to, to bring forth God's kingdom and rule forever in righteousness. And then comes Jesus. And this is what we read in Romans 1, chapter 4. And this is really helpful for understanding what the author is saying here. He says this. Paul, Paul writes this and he says, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. You get that? So the author's point is not that Jesus in His divinity has always been the Son of God, but that when He came in the flesh and He rose from the dead, that Jesus has been called the Son of God. He is the rightful King of God's people. He is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and the entire Old Testament. So when Jesus rose from the grave, He now ascended to the right hand of God where He sits and He rules. And so the, so the author is saying, which, which angel ever achieved that? He's like, no. The angels established the Old Covenant. The angels established the Old Covenant that looked forward to Jesus, but Jesus is the one who fulfills it. So Jesus is greater than angels. Number two, Jesus' honor is superior to angels. As we make our way through in verse 6, the author is going to quote Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. And he says, and when he says, um, and when he brings the firstborn to the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now the word firstborn is not referring to Jesus as being a part of creation, as if Jesus was the first of all God's creation, and then Jesus made everything else. Now Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses, that is what they believe. They believe that Jesus is part of God's creation. He's less than God, but he's more than us. Uh, again, there was a book, uh, it was written by a professor over at Western Seminary, and it's called Superheroes Cannot Save Us. And it's an incredible book where it just looks at all these heresies uh, about Jesus and connects them to superheroes. And it's just a wonderful way to remember it. And so this, this belief is really, it's called Arianism, but you can remember it by the superhero named Thor. Because Jesus, uh, again, we, we said this a little bit earlier, He's less than Odin, his father, but he's greater than man. That's, that's who Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses define Jesus. But that's not what firstborn here means. See, firstborn here refers to the special status that Jesus has over 
all creation. I mean, if we go back to chapter 1, verse 2, we're told that Jesus is the heir of all creation, meaning he owns it all, he possesses it all. We read that he also has made everything, he owns everything. And remember, we saw that he is the very glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So he's equal with God, he's not less than God. And this is why then we're told that the angels worship Jesus, and then he's going to quote Psalm 104, verse 4 in chapter 7, and he's going to say that Jesus is the one who made the angels, and the angels are, the, are his ministers. And you want to know something really interesting? Both these texts, Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 104, that the author here quotes, were originally attributed to God the Father. And so now, now what he's doing, he's saying the worship that was given to God the Father is actually also given to the Son, Jesus Christ. So he's saying Jesus is equal, co-equal, and co-eternal with the Father. He is superior to angels because he shares in the very honor and glory as the Father. And angels are mere creations of God used to accomplish his purposes and to bring glory to God. Hear this. We must, at every moment, refuse to believe what our culture says that Jesus is simply a good moral teacher or a good example for us to follow. C.S. Lewis, I think he said it well, we either believe Jesus was a liar, a lunatic, or he actually is who he said that he is. He's the one true son of God who brings about forgiveness of sins because he is fully God, and he's also man. Come in the flesh that you and I could have forgiveness of sins. Angels worshiped Jesus when he was born. And we are told in Revelation chapter 5 that right now around the throne, they are worshiping him. In fact, I want to read Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 through 14. This is just an incredible uh, picture of what is happening right now in the throne room. And so Revelation is this book that's kind of, it's a picture book. We're meant to visualize it. So I just want you to think and try to picture what is happening right now in the throne room of heaven. <clears throat> it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. He says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lord who was slain to receive power and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever, and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Right now, that's what's happening. Angels are simply proclaiming, worthy, worthy, worthy are you, Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and wisdom and wealth and might and power. That is our King. Why would you turn to Judaism? 
Why would you turn and worship, or why would you turn to what the angels instituted when the angels are now rightly worshiping Jesus Christ? The whole fulfillment of the Old Testament, the one true king, the son of God who has saved us from our sins. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is worthy of all worship. And hear this. If you've believed in Jesus Christ, then like the angels, one day we will surround the throne and we will bow before Him and with great joy and might and with every ounce of of energy in our souls, we will praise Him. And we will do so for all of eternity and it will be glorious and amazing. But if we turn from Christianity, If we go to Judaism or any other religion, if we think there is salvation in any name other than Jesus Christ, then we will bow down. But we will bow down as his hand of judgment is upon us and we will suffer forever lasting torment. And so here the author, the pastor of this letter is pleading with the church, don't Don't turn back to Judaism. You must see that Judaism was pointing us all the time to Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the one who has come and died and rose again. And He is the one we are called to worship. So persevere in the faith. Number three, Jesus' rule is superior to angels. In verse 5, the author was primarily emphasizing uh, Jesus as God's Son, not only in His divinity, but also in His incarnation. But now in verse 8, the author is going to quote Psalm 45. And Psalm 45 is like this wedding psalm. It's this beautiful coronation psalm. And it emphasizes the eternal, perfect rule of Jesus. He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and you have hated wickedness. I can't, I can't emphasize it enough. And we're going to be emphasizing this all the way throughout the Old Testament, or throughout the book of Hebrews. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And the author wants us to see that the right way to read the Old Testament is to understand it all points to Jesus. And, and the main hope of the Old Testament was for a king. In fact, Hebrew, Isaiah chapter 9. and Isaiah 9, which is a common text that we love to read around Christmas, it says this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus is this king, is this child, is the son of God who who brings about God's kingdom. Hear this. You got to remind yourself this every day. There's no American president Biden, Trump, or anyone else that will rule forever. There's no earthly country, government, that possesses all power. And there is no government on earth that rules in righteousness and hates wickedness. No, they're all perverted by sin. There might be threads of goodness in them, but they are perverted in and out by sin. 
In fact, in, in Psalm 10, uh, the author in verse 10 quotes Psalm 102. And the author says that one day creation will all perish. And he says it will be rolled up like a garment. Just like, just like you, you would roll up a towel or, or you would roll up your pants and you would pick them up. He said, so that's going to be like creation. It'll just be rolled up and it's going to be thrown out. There's going to be a new creation. And the only thing that's going to stand in, that, in this creation is God's kingdom. For all the other kingdoms of earth will perish. All kingdoms, Judaism and everything else will perish. The one thing that will stand forever is the throne of God. And he says, if you have believed in Jesus, then you are citizens of that kingdom. And you will live with him forever. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says that God has put eternity into man's hearts. Do you know that? Etched into the soul of every person is the knowledge that this world, that this life is not all that there is. This is why every religion, every religion has some type of understanding, some belief of the afterlife. They know there has to be something more. This is why we, you and I, we have this innate feeling. When we go and on a, on a clear night, we see the stars and we look up at them, we know there's a creator. We know there's a king. It's etched into our very souls. We understand this. And in God's word, we're told that king, that creator, that sustainer, that one who redeems us is Jesus Christ. The Son of God. So last point now. Last point. Jesus' role is superior to angels. We come to this last quotation to verse 13. In verse 13, the psalmist quotes Psalm 110. Now Psalm 110, we're going to spend a whole sermon on that coming up. But Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the Old Testament. It's specifically written to help us understand who Jesus is. And we're told, Jesus is the king who sits at the right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In verses 6 and 7, we're told that the angels worship Jesus. In verse 14, we see that they're sent out by Jesus to serve the saints. The author is saying that the angels that brought forth the old covenant are now being served or being used by Jesus to serve the new covenant. So two things I want to say here. Number one, Jesus sits at the right hand of God. He's on his throne right now. And the fact that he's sitting, remember, it doesn't mean he's acting passive at this moment. He's not just kicking back on the lazy boy, but he's actively ruling creation right now. Do you understand that? He's actively ruling all creation. He's preparing this world for his return. He's subduing all of his enemies right now. And, and you might say, I don't see that because I'm with you. I think if we look at all creation, we look at CNN, we look at Fox, whatever your favorite news channel is, and we go, the world doesn't look like it's being prepared for the return of Jesus. We're not seeing evil curbed necessarily. And you know, I think the author gets that. And so in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, at the present, we don't see everything in subjection to him. So I think he gets that. He's saying, look, Jesus right now, he's sitting, he's bringing everything under his rule, but it doesn't look like that, does it? I mean, when we look at the world right now, we see that the church throughout the world is being persecuted. There's martyred saints day after day. 
Because of COVID, it looks like things are chaotic here in America with the political and social upheavals that we've had. Many people are like, is God even present here in America anymore? But one thing we're going to see as we make our way through this book is that when we live by faith, or to live by faith is trusting in the promises, is trusting more in the promises of God than in our circumstances that surround us. Do you understand that? Faith is about trusting in God's promises more than our circumstances. And in fact, when we get to Hebrews 11, that just is like highlighted as Noah builds an ark because God says we want to send a flood. They'll flood the, all, flood the entire earth. So build an ark. And so he does that, which probably appeared very foolish at that time where when Abraham leaves his homeland and he goes to a land that he doesn't know where he's going, he's saying, all right, I'm going to leave all that I know. I'm going to leave um, all the things that I have and I'm going to go to this place far out. God says he's going to give me. I'm going to trust more in the, in the purposes and promises of God than in my present circumstances. Listen, the resurrection of Jesus proves that he's the one true son of God who has fulfilled the Old Testament and he now sits at the right hand of God's throne and he is bringing all enemies under his rule, preparing for his return. And here's the second truth I want you to see. Look at verse 14. These angels, they're sent to minister to the church. Do you get that? So the author, in that sense, is saying, how can you turn back to Judaism when the angels who established the Old Covenant are now serving the church in the New Covenant? Why would you go back? How can... And he wants us to know that we can persevere in our faith right now. And how do we do that? Well, God gives us grace from His throne he gives us grace. He gives us his word that we would understand him. He gives us the church that we'd come alongside one another, build each other up, encourage one another. But also he gives angels. Do you get that? He sends angels for the purpose of ministering and building you and me up. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, we are told that the church has entertained angels at times. They, apparently, they will come in human form, and they will minister, and they will bring comfort, and they will accomplish God's purposes around us, and we might not even know that there are angels around us. But you know, as I was, uh, as I was studying for this, one of the commentaries that I came in uh, began just to give a list of stories of, of times where people have seen angels protecting God's people. So I just want to share. This is one that comes from uh, about 100 years ago. A, spot, a Scottish missionary couple found themselves surrounded by cannibals. The, uh, it was at night, and they come with fire. They surround the house, and they're ready to, they're ready to destroy and kill this family. And then to, to eat them because they're cannibals and they hate them at this moment because of the things that have been happening on the island. They're blaming these Christians. And then we're told, but as the sun began to rise, to their astonishment, they found the natives were retreating to the forest. And the couple's heart, they soared. I mean, they're praying to God. And, and so they, they praised God. Now, the missionaries, they continued to work there. And a year later, one of the chieftains of that tribe was converted. And the missionary spoke and he said, hey, do you remember that night? Do you remember that night you came and you surrounded us and you were going to kill us? What happened? 
And so the chief replied, well, who were all those men with you? And the missionary replied, there was no men with us. It was just my wife and I. We were by ourselves. And chief argued with him. He said, no, there were hundreds of tall men in shining garments with drawn swords circling your house. So we could not attack you. Isn't that incredible? So that comes from John Patton, the missionary who went down to the Hebrides and shared the gospel. And in uh, 1956, we read uh, of, another, of another example where the Mau Mau's uh, in East Africa, there were, uh, there were marauders going from village to village, destroying people. And they came to the village of Lori and they surrounded and they killed every inhabitant, including men and women, 300 people in all. And about three miles away was, uh, was the Rift Valley Academy. It was a private school where missionaries would send their children to be educated. And so immediately after these, these Mau Mau's, they kill, they kill all of these people in this Lori village. They're going to head to the academy where they're going to kill every single child. In the darkness of light, <clears throat> the, 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 the Mau Mau's, they begin to surround the village and, and they, they form a circle around it. They come closer and closer and they're chanting and the, and the, Children in the school and the teachers, they're scared. They have no idea what's going to happen. So they're just praying. They're just praying to God for help. Their spears are drawn. Their bows are ready. And then all of a sudden they begin retreating and running into the jungle. Eventually the army goes out. It captures all of them. They bring them on trial. And the judge questioned them. And he said, on that particular night, did you kill all the inhabitants of Lori? And they said, yes. And then he said, well, did you go to, the, to the, the mission school and try to kill the children there? And they said, yes. And he says, why did you not do it? And he said, the leader of the Mau Mau's, he said, we were on our way to attack and destroy all the people of the school. But as we came closer, all of a sudden, between us and the school, there were huge men dressed in white with flaming swords. And we became afraid and ran and hid. Like there are, are hundreds and hundreds of stories like this where God intervenes in time and history, sending forth his angels to comfort and to protect and to provide for the needs of his children. So I just want to encourage you, whatever you're going through right now, I want to remind you that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. In Philippians 1, 6, he promises that he will complete the good work in you. And in Jude chapter 24, he says, I will keep you in the faith from stumbling. And he is sitting on his throne right now, giving out grace, providing for what you need. And one of the ways that he perseveres us, one of the ways that he's going to strengthen you and me and us as a church is by sending his angels to minister and to protect. And here's the thing, we might not even know when it happens. We might not ever know until we get to eternity how many times God's angels have protected or provided and, and brought comfort to us. But know this, they are his servants for the purpose of carrying out his will to help us. Why would we go to Judaism? Why would you go to any other religion when there is the one true God who came to earth, rose from the dead, rules at the right hand of God, and uses all of his powers and grace right now to persevere you and me. So again, the author is turning to this church and saying, keep the faith. Keep the faith. Jesus is greater. He's greater in everything you're going through. Don't turn from him. 
Oh, we might endure trials. We might endure suffering. Oh, but He is sufficient to provide for us, to strengthen us. And if we die here on this world, let us know that we are immediately brought into His, into his presence where we will dwell for all of eternity in perfect joy. So keep the faith, run the race, persevere. Let's pray. Our Father, our Father, we come to you and we just simply praise you. That you have sent your Son and he is greater than every situation we can experience. He is with us. He is using his grace, his might, his power, his angels right now to comfort us and to strengthen us. And so Lord, I pray, I pray for our church. May today as we've read your word, as we've studied your word, may we grow in our understanding. May we grow in our faith. May we persevere. And God, I pray that we would not be tempted to turn from you, that whatever doubts that we have, that you'll bring comfort to us by your word and through your church. And that we would not let those doubts take root and grow into denial, that we disobey you and we turn from you. But Lord, may we be a church that regularly comes alongside one another, encouraging each other with your word so we would run the race. Oh, Father, we love you. In your name, Jesus, amen.